Howdy. Welcome to the Pocket Contemplative. I'm Dave Smelser. And if you are listening to this as the podcast drops, Happy New Year. One of the surprising gifts I've gotten from all this contemplative stuff I've gotten so into is that it's given me a surprising new take on what trusting God looks like. Like everyone, I've often been in some tenuous situations where I've gotten a little edgy, and Christian friends who themselves are not feeling that same edginess have encouraged me that the answer to my problems boils down to I need to trust God more than I do. While that's clearly worthy advice, I haven't exactly known how I was supposed to pull that off. Evidently, the amount of trust I had in God was exactly represented by the edginess I was experiencing. That's how much trust I had. Trusting God more did not seem to be on the table or I would be doing it. But contemplative practice has offered me a new understanding of what's possible on that front. And evidently, there are ways I could trust God more than I do. Who knew? So this episode, I'm going to start with a story along these lines, and then I'll look both at an alternative take on trusting God from the Bible itself. But then, as I do maybe once every 20 or 30 podcasts, I'm going to take a brief dive into how another religious tradition approaches this key question in a way that at least I am helped by. And then we'll loop back to some of those Bible takes and to a killer quote from that most famous mid-century Christian contemplative Thomas Merton. Before we start, just a note, we started releasing four-day-a-week, minute-long videos on the sort of stuff we talk about here, and then some short quote reels in the other days. In my biased opinion, these minute-long videos are pretty good. They're full of dramatic B-roll. They have popping images that nonetheless, in a very brief form, try to convey some of the depth of the contemplative life that we explore here. Just starting out, most of our videos over all platforms are finding like several hundred views. But then for unclear reasons, some of them get like 10 or more times that. One early one that popped talks about a key concept on this podcast. It's called Get Behind the Waterfall. Check it out. That one went into the thousands. Where to find these videos, that said, is not entirely obvious, but let me direct you and pick your favorite social media platform. On Instagram, which I'm guessing will be where we will give the most focus, you can find us either at journeyon3, one word with the number three, journeyon, the number three, or at my name, Dave underscore Schmelzer, S-C-H-M-E-L-Z-E-R, Dave underscore Schmelzer. That's Instagram. On TikTok, this should be easy to to get to. We are at The Pocket Contemplative. On YouTube, we're at this extensive number. It's the way YouTube assigned us. We're at JourneyOn4475, if you are a YouTube person. JourneyOn4475. And at Facebook, we are again at JourneyOn3. JourneyOn, one word with the number three. Check them out. I don't think you'll be disappointed. And of course, if you would enjoy exploring online groups with tremendous people from all over the world who are exploring this stuff. As always, you can learn all about how to poke your head in at journey-on.net, journey-on.net. All right, let's get started with a contemplative way to trust God. So over the years, I've had many conversations with people who've gone through serious hard times. And I mean, super serious, not just unanswered prayers, but unanswered prayers which have led to children dying or fatal diagnoses for them. And it's put stress on marriages and it's put stress on them. And on occasion, I've had people, as they talk to me about that, say, you know, I used to have faith in God, but now I don't. And I've been thinking for my own purposes recently about that dynamic. What, what, what did it? What led this, this to be the thing that made faith in God not possible? And often it would be because I can't trust God anymore. We talked right at the beginning of these podcasts about three different types of Christian prayer in the tradition. Asking prayer, where it's like it's all over the Bible, we should, if there's something we don't have, we should ask God for it. Contemplative prayer, 
for obvious reasons, uh, is in the Bible, where be still and know that I am God from Psalm 46 might be a, a hallmark of contemplative spirituality, as we'll talk about in a minute. And the third type of prayer that gets talked about, in my understanding, in the tradition, is relationship prayer, that you can get a relationship with God. You talk, maybe God in some ways talks back, and you get a dialogue going. Brother Lawrence famously talks about that, asking prayer, contemplative prayer, relational prayer. Well, trusting God in the asking tradition has power, gets talked about all the time, but you can imagine his limitations as we get older, because more and more of those prayers are going to stack up that haven't gotten answered, and the stakes might go up. Then we start having children. Children start having trouble, sometimes serious trouble. Then what if they don't get, those prayers don't get answered? If we get that much older, our parents start getting sick, maybe we start getting sick, et cetera, et cetera. Asking prayer tends to have limits. And if trusting God is trusting God more to answer things we ask, I think we can run into the, the challenge that so many of my friends over the years describe to me. But it does seem to me that contemplatives have a remarkably different and maybe helpful perspective on this. So you could look at scriptures about trusting God that are not from the asking tradition, but are certainly in the Bible, like Psalm 16, 9. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. So this seems to be saying, of course, we're going to figure out a, how to navigate our, our way to the life we hope will end up happiest with the best outcomes for us. But in the end, it's sort of up to God. That's what trusting God looks like. Or Isaiah 26, verse 3. God will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in God. God will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in God. So trust there because they trust in God. That sort of trust gets us peace and a steadfast mind, meaning nothing can derail us. So the sorts of prayers which had such high stakes for so many of my friends, they don't derail us because we are trusting God and we have a steadfast mind. We're at peace. But how do you get there? Or again, our old favorite from Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. If we can just kind of be quieted, there's a psalm that talks about like a weaned child, I am still before God. Um, so being still before God as our life unfolds is its own form of trust in that tradition of the Bible. So let me think more about this perspective again by looking at this from just an outside view, which might shine light on these scriptures. So a couple of years ago, I talked on a podcast about a writer named Stephen Cope, who wrote a book called The Great Work of Your Life. He's American, but he wrote about how to find your calling in life, and he did it by a meditation on the Bhagavad Gita, the great holy book of Hindus. And um, he talked about it by describing, rather than talking about calling, he used a word from that tradition, which he then was sort of appropriating for his purposes. He called it dharma. Dharma is the key that fits the lock of your life, and how do you get there? And I'm going to go to one of his major points that I now realize, I'm told by a lecture, is actually one of the major points of the entire Bhagavad Gita and this larger book from which it, 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 it uh, comes called the Mahabharata. And so I can summarize this massive book with one point, evidently, but it sure has helped me. Let me tell you what it is. So again, the Mahabharata, the larger book from which the Bhagavad Gita comes, is this massive epic poem. It was written over 800 years or so. It is, in poetry, it is 10 times the length of the entire Bible. So the Bible times 10, and you have this. Um, started, they started writing, we, they, we think, in like 400 BC and or BCE, and it was finished in the 4th century AD, or the Common Era. Um, its plot line, overarchingly, as I understand it, is a big battle 
between this kind of evil tribe and this good tribe, a cosmic battle. I was told that a great theater director, I used to do theater back in the day, and in the day in which I was doing theater, a very famous theater director was a man named Peter Brook, British uh, director, and I'm told he was so taken with the Mahabharata in its totality that he worked throughout the 80s on a stage adaptation of it, which ran nine hours as he kept working it. He ultimately directed a movie based on it that went like six hours, but then there was a PBS version of it that went like three hours. That's the only one I could find. It's on order. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I discover from Peter Brooks' look at the Mahabharata. In any case, there are these um, holy books that have been excerpted from the Mahabharata, which have become some of the major holy books in Hinduism. Uh, there's the Vedas, there's the Upanishads, and most notably, there's the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita, we think, was written about the time of Jesus, a little afterwards, first century. And it has similarities with the story of Jesus. And in fact, I was told by this lecturer I listened to on this that the Mahabharata itself comes from something very connected to the Western tradition. That Sanskrit, which it was written in, is tied into languages like Greek. And so the Greek epics that were being written at the early part of the Mahabharata's composition, the Iliad, the Odyssey, things like that, have a lot of ties with the sort of hero the Mahabharata describes. They're from a similar tradition. And even again, the story of Jesus, I think, filters its way in a way that's at least recognizable in, um, in the Bhagavad Gita, that section of the Mahabharata. Um, so the Greek tradition, this person points out, describes a life that as we age increasingly feels lose-lose. Our choices get hard. I can care for this ailing relative, and if I do it, it's going to cost me at work and in my home life and in my sleep. But if I don't, I've neglected my aging relative. It's a lose-lose. So the Greek heroes have stories like that. Agamemnon is going to go off. He's the leader of the, the Greek armies. He's going to go off and fight uh, against the, the hostile villains. And he's told by Zeus, not a loving god, that... Um, that Zeus will give him the winds at his back and he'll win the battle and all his people will be saved. If he just does one paltry thing, he has to sacrifice somebody to Zeus and then Zeus will come through. And who he has to sacrifice is his own daughter. And so because he's a public-spirited guy, he sacrifices his daughter, he goes off to do the battle, he wins, he comes back home and his wife kills him because he killed their daughter. Lose, lose, let's just say. It's a view of life that that's, that's what aging brings us into to some degree. Well, the... Um, Bhagavad Gita has that, and it, it allows for a way of trusting God that I found so useful and I think would have helped some of the folks I've run across for whom the asking tradition of the Bible is powerful but ultimately falters because they haven't kind of found their way into that contemplative tradition. We started talking about this might be a bridge into it. And so here's the story of the Bhagavad Gita, this big battle. The hero of the Bhagavad Gita is the leader of the armies of the good tribe, a man named Arjuna. But he's in a lose-lose. Here's why. Because the tribes he has, the tribe he has to fight is full of relatives of his. And so if he fights them, he's going to be killing relatives and mentors people he's known. But if he doesn't fight, he's letting down the team of the good armies. They're all looking to him. They're dependent upon him. He's the leader of their armies. And um, he's also afraid, this will tie in, if you're familiar with Hinduism, to some Hindu ideas of bad karma coming from this. That karma is that every action we do has unanticipated consequences, but they're real. And so it'd be like, you know, I've taken a few moves across the country at points to uproot and try something new. You don't know what you are setting into place by that decision. It ripples out into the, you know, the, the, the ripples of your life. There's something is released. That would be the idea of karma. 
And what you're trying to do, as I understand it in Hinduism, is get out of the cycle of death and rebirth that karma brings. Because some actions are so big, they have to be fulfilled in a next life. And you don't want to be in a cycle of paying off karma from previous lives. You want to get out of that cycle. It's sort of like hell. And so he's afraid of bad karma here. If he kills all his relatives, that's bad karma. If he abandons his post as the leader of these armies, that's bad karma. It's a lose-lose. He's going to be paying off. He's going to go to hell if he does anything, if he acts, if he does stuff. And so how does he get out of this deal? And as it turns out, he has an ace in the hole. And his ace in the hole is he has a wise chariot driver, a servant named Krishna, perhaps a word you've heard before. And Krishna, it turns out, is the incarnation. Maybe you've heard of another incarnation that was right around the first century AD of the big god Vishnu. So there's little Jesus parallels, perhaps. In human form, you've got God, who's his chariot driver. And Vishnu has some advice. And Vishnu's advice boils down to this, this statement that Arjuna, quote, has a right to his actions, but not to the fruit of his actions. So in other words, he needs to do what he has to do, but he has to let go anything to come from those things. That becomes the thing. That becomes the bridge between, you know, trusting God that causes us to lose faith and trusting God that allows us to keep and thrive in faith. That would be an interesting bridge. What did Krishna mean? I think what he means is, here's the goal in another technical term. We're trying to develop in life. The big gift we can develop, the big thing we can have is this trait called discipline. Doesn't sound that appealing, right? Who really cares about being disciplined? We know we need to be, but we don't want to be. Discipline, though, here means that we are constantly asking ourselves, what's my duty now? What's the thing I should be doing now? And then we do it without being concerned if it's going to work. We do it because it's the right thing to do. And he says, if we do that, we get all sorts of good benefits from it. I will detail some of those in a moment. So maybe in keeping with the caste system that the Mahabharata, I think, certainly talks about, what's the duty of Arjuna? Well, he's in the soldier. He's a warrior. He's in the warrior caste. The duty of a warrior is to fight. So his duty is to fight the battle as best as he can on behalf of the people who are looking to him to fight the battle, even if it means he kills off Rolo. That's his duty. But he needs to leave the outcome of that to God. If he does that, he'll be uh, released from the cycle of lose-lose, of bad karma, of things of hell. He'll be released from that if he just does his duty. Now, if he can do this, we are told, he's offered essentially what the Christian mystics have called union with God. That might sound surprising to those of us who uh, grew up in the Christian tradition looking at Hinduism. We think union with God, really, like Teresa of Avila talks about, like Jugendam Norwich talks about, like some of the, so many of the great mystics in the Christian tradition talk about. As our goal, all we really want to be is united with God more than anything else. Krishna agrees with that. The Bhagavad Gita, I think, agrees with that. So how do we get union with God if we just do this one thing, that we have the right to our actions but not to the fruit of our actions? We ask, what's my duty, and do it, and leave outcomes to God. What do we get? We get three realizations. Here's the first. The first is that the universe is interconnected and we're a part of that interconnection. So if everyone did this, if you and I and everybody we know and the whole world really did this, we ask ourselves moment to moment, what's my duty here? And I'm gonna do it without needing to manipulate outcomes to get what I need or what I want from that, that action I'm gonna take. I just do the action and let it go. And if everyone's doing that, then everyone's doing what they are made to do. You know, so the soldier fights, the, the artist does art, the chef cooks, the, um, the lover loves, whatever, whatever that moment is, we all do. 
And then the world operates beautifully because then everybody is filling their space on earth and we all get the benefits from everybody else. What ruins it, as I understand it from this point of view, is if we can't, if we are not disciplined, if we do actions, but we need the fruit of the actions to work. And so it would be like, you know, caring for an aged relative. Some of the people who've lost faith have been caring for aged relatives. That hasn't gone well. But what if you care for the aged relative because that's your duty, but then you let it go? You've done, you care. They're going to they're gonna rally or they're going to die. Or they're gonna, whatever else is going to happen is going to happen. But your duty is what happens. Or you start a business. Of course, you want to make money. Of course, you want to, you know, employ plenty of people. Of course, you want to get rich. But what if you just start the business and run it the best you can and you let it go? If you have to manipulate events to make sure they work, then we're holding on so tightly, we're not happy in the doing of it, and we have to get ours. And so that sense, the world becomes, rather than interconnected, it becomes competitive. That I'm trying to get mine, you're trying to get yours, everyone's trying to get theirs. And so we all have to kind of watch our backs, which may be the actual world, don't get me wrong, but run with this as a theory, at least. So if we have a right to our actions, but not to the fruit of our actions, we realize the universe is interconnected and we're a part of that interconnection, and that's an important thing. This leads to, I believe, I still have only on point one of the three things it gives, it leads, I, I think, to what the business strategist would call a bias towards action. That it's saying basically, just if you have something you think you should do, do it. If you can do it without needing it to work, then you can do stuff, you can try things, you can see what happens, you can get moving. If it has to work, you gotta be kind of conservative with what you do, because you don't know the consequences of it and you don't know if it's gonna work. Now, granted, I'm sure there's, you've got to be wise with you. None of us have infinite time or energy or resources. So you've got to make some, some value judgments, some decisions about what to try. But you can see how this might lean towards, if, if in doubt, do it, try, get moving, which I love. There's a freedom to this. Okay, three realizations. I haven't even gotten us off the first. The first is, again, the universe is interconnected and we're a part of that interconnection if we do the action without regard to the fruit of it, if we're disciplined. The second realization, our interests and the interests of the universe coincide. That the entire created order, the universe and God is on our side as we do that. And so like, how could anybody do this? We do actions, but we let the fruits, we leave them to God. How could we do this? We need to earn a living. We wanna have a happy life. We wanna you know, have new opportunities. We wanna do stuff. If we truly leave all the outcomes, the fruit of the actions to God, you know, how can we pull that off? We need stuff. What this would say is, if you can do that, you're going to find that the universe, God, is the wind at your back. There's a trust that's going to give you connections you hadn't seen before, that your interests are not opposed to the interests of the whole world. So, realization one, the universe is interconnected, and we're a part of that interconnection. A related realization two, our interests and the interests of the universe coincide. And then the third insight that comes from this view of the world with these realizations, we will find union with God and joy in accepting the world as it is, even as we take our part in God's universal plan. Long third realization. With these realizations, we'll find union with God, that sounds good, and joy, that also sounds good, in accepting the world as it is. Oh, we gotta, we gotta accept that as it is, right? We, we can't manipulate it. Even as we take our part in God's universal plan. So now we're doing our duty, and so we're part of God's universal plan, and then we're seeing what happens. Okay, I thought about this a ton with things that I try. What actions are the right ones for me to try? 
whether or not they work. I have a right to my actions, but not to the fruit of my actions. So I mentioned uh, before the, the uh, podcast began formally here that we're doing these short videos. That came up. You know, they're really fun. They're kind of a lot of work. Are they going to work? I, I don't have much experience with social media. I don't have a great following in social media yet. So, you know, I was told by my children, trust the algorithm as if this algorithm is like God who will watch out for me. Um, but I suppose I'll see what the algorithm does. And it's popped a few, as I've said. On the other hand, at various points, only days ago, I was asking, what's the point of this? Now, what's the point does, you know, that's an important thing to think about. But let's think about trusting God from this perspective, you know, with this trivial example, unlike my friend's example, which are serious. But in the small example, I have a right to my actions, not to the fruit of my actions. So what's my duty? Is my duty to do the videos or duty not to do the videos? My best sense before God was, it was to do the videos, give it a shot, see what happens. Trust the algorithm, see if the universe backs it. I don't know, try it. And so there you go. Well, there, that, that is, that's a bias towards action, towards getting moving on things. Um, and again, I think the challenges that my friends have faced that are so serious, how would this work for them? Because the reason they lost faith in God was because they had very serious, you know, deaths of children and these horrible, horrible challenges. How could they do this when the stakes are so high? Well, I guess what I would suggest is they were not able to keep faith with the plan they had. They did what they had to do, didn't go the way they wanted. Faith was the cost and happiness was also the cost. I think they, are, they became fairly unhappy when they were talking to me and hopeless that that was changeable. So the outcomes don't seem good there. Would discipline have helped them? Again, I am not anyone to cast any aspersions on anybody dealing with difficult circumstances by any means. But I can wonder if it ties back to the scriptures that we talked about earlier. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Or God will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast, disciplined, because they trust in God. So what does it mean to take the actions we need to take and then see what happens. Be curious. I wonder how that's going to go. I guess I'll find out. I wonder what I'll learn as I go. And what I'm going to learn is the warp and woof of life with God. The warp and woof of things going tremendously well. You know, my short videos, some of them got thousands of, you know, of views. Oh, that's fun. I wonder what that's like. And some of them, it's like that got, you know, far less than that. You know, some small fraction of that. Oh, that was discouraging. But I wonder what it feels like to see when they don't go well and when they do go well. Again, to reiterate, as I've done so many times here, I'm not comparing that to high, high stakes. This is a, a fun project at best. But, but I can see the power of that discipline, and I can see why it has such a long biblical tradition as well. Um, and I, I also can see how it can free us from the lose-lose dynamic that I am told the Greeks and the Mahabharata are really concerned to talk about. That as we age, life increasingly, choices increasingly, will seem more and more lose-lose. So is that how you want your life to go or that's in your future? Well, a way out of it is this, is the proposal, is trusting God in the way those scriptures I mentioned talk about and in the way that evidently the Bhagavad Gita is so concerned to help us with. And they're not alone. Thomas Merton, probably the most famous Christian contemplative of the mid-20th century, he once advised a young activist in this fashion. He wrote, do not depend on the hope of results to your activism. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and even achieve no result at all, if not perhaps results opposite to what you expect. As you get used to this idea, 
you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. Do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and even achieve no result at all, if not perhaps results opposite to what you expect. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. Before God in this moment, what's my duty to myself, to the situation, to God, to my family, to whatever? What's, what is the action that is this action, the one I should take? And then you do it because of the truth of the work itself, says Merton. If you do the opposite, if you depend on the hope of results, it could all crash, he says to activists. This has been totally encouraging to me. I hope it is to you, even when things so often seem perplexing as life so often does. That's it for this episode of the Pocket Contemplative. We will talk again soon.